brothers and sisters, greetings. Thank you for coming out tonight. While I love thee, I will never my Redeemer's love forget. And is not the Christian life a life of calling to remembrance the great truths surrounding our salvation? I am not here to teach you anything that you don't already know, that your pastors here do not teach you. We're here simply to spend time in the Word, calling our hearts to remember and refreshing our hearts to the great truths concerning Christ and His church. And my heart needs this as much as your heart needs this. We're here together to seek the face of Jesus. As we think about families, uh, one of the core elements of family is, any ideas? A good paying job, right? It's the most important thing, probably. Hmm, really? Um, what's one of the most foundational things to a family in God's economy? You are right, brother. When it comes to a family structure, we would say it's marriage. Is that right? When it comes to family structure, at least that's the way we're going to look at it tonight. Jesus is the most important. You're right. Thank you. So I'm going to share some thoughts uh, tonight on marriage, look at some things in the Word of God, because we need to constantly remember uh, the great gift that comes to us in marriage. Now, I didn't tell my wife I was going to share thoughts on marriage tonight until just before we walked out the door. And you know what she said? She said, oh, no, don't say that we have a perfect marriage. And the reason my wife says that is because I have this tendency to say that my wife and I have a perfect marriage. I do say that. So I just said it, okay? She told me not to say it. I just said it. And so I need to explain myself a little bit so I don't get in trouble with you all and so that I don't get in trouble with her or so she don't get in trouble with you all. Because here's what typically happens. I say we have a perfect marriage, and then I preach a sermon, and then people come to her, the sisters come to her and say, what's the recipe for a perfect marriage? And... She says, she feels like she's put on the spot because a perfect marriage compared to what? To whose? I mean, what's the definition of a perfect marriage? And what is the recipe? And so tonight, if you leave here, before you leave here, you go up to her and say, what's the recipe for a perfect marriage? Her answer to you is supposed to be, why weren't you listening? And so it's... If she doesn't tell you that, come and ask me, and I'll, I'll ask you why you weren't listening. Anyway, my, my, rest, my, my definition of a perfect marriage is this, is that a perfect marriage is a marriage that in some measure is progressing in giving a reflection of the reality of the gospel. Did you get that? Okay? It's not important where you're at right now. It's not important how fast you're going to be growing towards Christ-likeness in your marriage. But is there a growing Christ-likeness in your marriage? Is there a growing revelation of the gospel in your marriage? That's the question. Is that an acceptable definition of a perfect marriage? And can we all have perfect marriages if that is the definition of a perfect marriage? Because it's not about us, right? It's not about what we want out of the marriage. It's about Christ being glorified in our marriages. And so it's, it's pretty simple when you think about it. God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
Everything was perfect. And when you have perfection in marriage, perfection, not the kind of perfection that we're striving for, but perfection, you have loving headship and willing submission. What did I just say? Someone tell me. What do you have? Thank you. Everyone together. Loving headship, willing submission. That is key to understanding how the gospel applies to our marriages. Loving headship, willing submission. Before the fall of man, what we see in the garden is that we see this um, this koinonia between God and his creation. We see this koinonia between Adam and Eve. There was a close uh, fellowship without conflict. There was no conflict, right? And so koinonia, first and foremost, means no conflict, the absence of conflict. And then um, Adam and Eve made a fatal mistake in the aid of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when the time for koinonia to happen in the cool of the evening came, God's walking through the garden, and he says, Adam, 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 where are you, son? And Adam um, peeks out from behind the bushes and says, um, um, I hid because I became aware that I am vulnerable. I have no clothing to hide myself. And we know the story. Oh, how did that happen? Well, the woman you gave me, she's no longer his loving wife. She's a woman he gave, that God gave. And uh, he blames his wife, and Eve says the devil made me do it. And suddenly what we see is that there is this conflict between God and man. And we see conflict between man and wife. And that is the story. There's no longer loving headship. There's no longer willing submission. That is the story. And right there in the midst of that tragedy, uh, Jesus, God says, look, I'm going to provide redemption. I'm going to provide redemption. There's going to be consequences. I will provide redemption. And so we have the story through the Old Testament of man living with the consequences of the decisions that he made, choices that he made. And we have Jesus coming and giving his life, shedding his blood, that we might have redemption. Now, the secret to having a marriage that is glorifying God is that we take the gospel and we apply it to our marriage relationship. And we, we work at that for the entire existence of our um, marriage as we live out our covenant relationship. And what we're doing is we're writing a version of the gospel. We're writing a scroll that we will hand off to the generation that follows us. Um, it's going to be a version of the gospel. And the question is, will your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, when they read the scroll of your life, will they see the gospel message clearly? That's the question. Will it be a story of redemption? That in the home that God allowed me to grow up in, I've seen this growing, uh, loving headship uh, in my father, I've seen him becoming more and more loving and taking his responsibility with greater humility and seriousness throughout as he grew with the Lord. I see my mom growing in her willing submission to dad. And that is, you know, that's the picture that we have in Scripture. And so tonight we don't have a lot of time. We just don't. 
But I just want to give you a couple of things that helped me to remember uh, some of the key elements of bringing our hearts to that place where the gospel can actually be worked out uh, in our marriages. And so I'm just going to give you the recipe again. The recipe to a perfect marriage is uh, loving headship and willing submission um, applied to our lives, the gospel applied to our, our, our covenant relationship that we have. That's the recipe. And that's simplistic. I know that. But that's really what it comes down to. I, I've spent literally, brothers and sisters, I have literally spent hundreds of hours of my life uh, listening to people struggling. And, and I would imagine even a congregation this size, there's probably some of you who would say, you know, there's things in, in marriage that are harder than I expected. Or it's just not what I expected. I just imagine that could be the case. And there was a time in my life I was, I was ordained as a deacon. I don't remember, maybe 28, 30 years ago. First of all, there in our little congregation. And when you step into the place of ministry, you suddenly become aware that there's struggles going on around you uh, that are common to all of us. And, and my heart was to reach out and to, um, to be a blessing and to help people to learn how to build their relationship and honor God in that. And the first path I went down as I became involved in a number of struggling marriages was um, an intellectual path of trying to help people learn how to cope, how to exist together in peace. And, and so I, I, I took a course Never completed the course, but I took an extensive course with the American Christian Counseling Association. I think there was 99 classes in that course. But I took that, started into that course and spent quite a few hours working through that course. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, I became deeply convicted that it's not this complicated. It is not this complicated. There's a tremendous tendency in all of us to want to be coddled. We get addicted to attention. And I sat down with a couple within the last two weeks that are in their 50s. And their pastor told me that for years, it's been in and out of counseling, in and out of counseling, in and out of counseling. I had been involved before, and we sat down together, and I just simply asked uh, them some hard questions. Uh, at your age, you're still looking for things in your marriage to do things for you that only God can do for you. At your age, dear sister, you should be teaching the younger women how to love their children and how to love their husband. That is God's plan for you. And it better bother you that you're not there. You're still babying yourself through life. This is serious. You better get on with, with serving God. You better quit loving the attention that you get going to counselor to counselor and counselor. You better quit loving that because that is a reproach. It's a slap into the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to really call our hearts to maturity in Christ. We need to believe that the gospel has power and that that power transform, transforms our marriages into something where we're not give me, give me, give me, but we become the willing servants of Jesus Christ. It's a serious thing. To live in our marriage relationships in such a way that we are the needy ones for years and years and years. And so I say to you, if you're, if you're struggling in your marriage, it's okay. But don't struggle long. All right? Don't struggle long. Grow up. 
Find in Christ what you need to be a mature man, a mature woman, a loving husband, a willingly submissive spouse. You need to find it in Christ. And if you don't, you're going to be on a lifelong journey of trying to find answers for your marriage, and you'll never find it. And so it's out of those hundreds of hours that I've spent listening to people, sharing with people over the years. I just want to share some things with you. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is so simple that there's many things that just are not so obvious to us. We become so familiar with things. Did you ever notice how I talked about last night, the beauty of the mountains? You know, I'm like, wow, because this is the first time I've been through this valley. But if you're here a while, after a while, it's not quite so obvious. The beauty doesn't just jump out at you. You have to take time and quiet your heart and sit back and reflect. And we often fail to do that with the realities and the incredible promises associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you, if I would ask one of you brethren, any of you brethren to come up here and take over at this point, and I want you to uh, share the key core message of the gospel, uh, what word would you use to describe it? One of you brothers. Love, thank you, exactly, precisely, for God so loved the world. Thank you. Love. And if you were going to teach on love, what's one of the passages that we could turn to 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 say some things about love? What comes to your mind? John 3.16. Very good. Very good. If you were going to talk about love as it relates to uh, relationships within the body of Christ and within the marriage, you might turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go there. Actually, let's, let's park just for a little bit at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, you know, in the, in the original manuscript, there was no chapter and verse. It was just a continuous letter. And, and so what Paul has been saying in, in chapter 12 is, okay, the way to remove conflict from the brotherhood and the way to um, experience koinonia is to uh, recognize that God has given everybody various gifts, and those are all important. We're not the same people. Your spouse is different than you. Thank God for that. She brings a strength to your marriage that you don't bring husbands, and wives, your husbands bring a strength that you don't have. And it's a, it's a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful blessing. But all of this only makes sense if we understand the New Testament concept of love that's portrayed in the gospel. So this is the key, the key that unlocks our understanding. We, we come to the end of chapter 12, and, and we, we come to verse 31. It says this, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet, yet, okay? So you have the gifts here, but I want to show you something else. I want to show unto you a, what is it? Everyone together. A more excellent way. Let's say that again. I, I'm, I'm, about hard, I'm, I'm about half or three quarters deaf. I'm not quite sure which it is. I want to hear the brother clear at the back. I want to hear your voice, okay? A more excellent way. Ready? A more excellent way. Now, that was much better. That was much, much better. So, <clears throat> a more excellent way is uh, what we call a double what? Superlative. Okay? And so when you think about you're going to grade something and you, you, you're, going to, you're going to go buy something and, and things are rated uh, by their quality. And first of all, you have what? Good. What's next? 
Better? And what's next? Best? And so, good, better, best? What Paul was saying, when you use a double superlative, it's like saying best times whatever, multiple. Okay? A double superlative is saying best, but many times better than just best. It is like the ultimate. It is beyond what you can grasp in your mind. It is so good. <laughs> this is really good stuff. This, is, this, this excites my heart because we only understand a little bit. There's such a blessing in the, the word structure here. It is a double superlative. It is best times whatever you add to it. It's, it's just to help stimulate your mind to grasp uh, what love is and the place that it plays in our lives. Let's jump over to chapter 13, and we're not going to take time just for the sake of, of saving time here tonight. We're not going to read the whole way down through the chapter. This is one of those beautiful mountain scenes that we uh, maybe look at so often that we become so familiar with that we no longer stand in amazement at. So I'm just going to hit a few points here. I want us to just call our attention to some of the um, aspects of true love. Verse 6, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. Now, last night we said truth is what? Truth is re- truest reality. The very truest reality that can exist is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I am reality. So what we rejoice in in our marriages, you ever notice how it's so easy? You know, you might have a wife who is um, <clears throat> extremely gifted at keeping the house clean and cooking good meals, but just a little something irritates you, and you will notice that little thing irritates you. Did you ever notice that? Your husband might go to work and work five days a week or six days a week to provide for his family. He might be a hardworking man who goes out and, and, and by the sweat of his brow puts food on the table, and there might be, I mean, there might be a thousand women that would trade their husband for your husband. You'll find something wrong with your husband, and you will focus on that one thing that irritates you. Did you ever notice that? That's just the way we are. And this scripture says, you know what? You don't do that. True love does not do that. True love rejoices in the, in the blessing that my spouse has been to me. True love overlooks a multitude of faults and shortcomings and focuses on that one, on the, on the many, many blessings that come to us through the gift that God has given to us in our spouse. In verse 7, this aligns right up with what Brother Floyd was saying. Uh, we do hard better. I just like that thought. That was, that was really good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And, and you notice how he starts and ends this, this verse with uh, doing hard better. Okay? We, we bear it. We, in Jesus, in going to the cross and loving us, he bore in his own body. In other words, he absorbed in himself our sins and our iniquities. And our marriages are to demonstrate the gospel in that way. When maybe one of, our, one of us are a little bit sharp or short in our response, sometimes we just absorb that. We just, did you ever do that? Mm, yeah, I think we all have in some way or another. We've absorbed it. We just take it. Huh, it's okay. It's all right. I've been forgiven much. I forgive much. To live with that attitude enables us to extend forgiveness to our spouse without uh, demanding justice 
on our part. I want to drop down and just spend a couple minutes on uh, verse 13. Uh, now abideth these three. What are the three that abide? What are the three that abide there? Someone tell me. Just shout it out. Faith? What's the next one? Hope? And what's the last one? Love? Charity? Okay. So you have this uh, holy trinity, if you will. You can't separate faith and love, or faith and hope. Is that right? In fact, it is your faith in God that gives you hope. Without faith in God, you have no hope. You're of all men most miserable. All you have before you is eternity staring you in the face. And there's nothing you can do about it without a faith in the finished work of Christ. So faith is inseparable from hope. You cannot have hope unless you have faith. But what is hope, what does faith and hope have to do with charity? Uh, what, does, what does Paul tell us here? These three, you have this, these three very necessary elements of the, of the Christian life. Uh, but what is he going to say? Someone tell me what he says. The bottom line, the most important is love, charity. Is that right? That is the bottom line. And so what he's saying is faith and hope are not an end in themselves. Faith and hope is for the purpose of bringing us to the point where we have genuine, sincere charity in our hearts, one for another. I um, like to look at some um, words in the Greek sometimes. If you just say the word love in America, what does it mean? I love my wife. I love Chevy trucks. Does that mean that my wife and Chevy trucks have equal value? So what does it mean to love something? Uh, It's a little bit difficult to really grasp the word love in today's lingo, in in the world's language. When um, you hear someone say, I love my girlfriend. I talked with a young man recently, and he was living with his girlfriend. A father of a child to his girlfriend always says, I love my girlfriend. I really love her. And so we talked about love in um, the biblical context a bit. Because I think it's good. We need to be able to challenge people. When they say, I love something, what do you mean you love something? In the uh, Hebrew, and this is reflected in the Greek, there's three definitions of love. Uh, One is eros. Does anyone know what that means? It's romantic love. It's based on feelings. It's a feelings-based love. And you read it throughout the Old Testament. You read it in in Song of Solomon. Uh, A lot of um, feelings are emotionally based love. It's what we call romantic love. But, you know, the interesting thing about romantic love is it's about what is in it for me. What do I get out of this? Do you get that? That's basically, it's a gift of God. Don't get me wrong. The desire that a young man has for a young lady is a gift from God. 
Okay? We're very grateful for that. You men that are married, are you grateful for that? It's a gift of God. So it's, it's not like it's wrong. It's actually a very precious gift from God. But it has to be sanctified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we tend to go into it with what's in it for me, rather than how can my marriage glorify God. And so we recognize that even in the, in the Old Testament. We recognize that uh, eros or, or romantic love is about seeking personal fulfillment or achievement in life. And it basically what it does, I want you to get this, this point right here, is that uh, eros um, puts the burden on those about me for my um, happiness. You got that? So how long has it been since your boyfriend gave you flowers? Well, actually, it's been six weeks now since my boyfriend gave me flowers. I hear conversations like that. Uh, Eros, my boyfriend could make me happier if he gave me flowers every three weeks instead of every six weeks. He has a responsibility. That's a concept. That's a, that is the way we tend to think. Why? Because we are self-centered people. And if our, mer- if our love never develops beyond that, we are in trouble. And, and there's people here. There's, I see young couples here. I know you love each other. I know you want to be using the kingdom of God. And you see people who are struggling in their marriages. I, we, my wife and I spent time on the phone this afternoon talking with somebody in a, a distant state. Her and her husband, they're not in the ministry. But they are passionate about helping people have strong marriages. And we were t- spending time together today, just counseling together how they might be able to reach somebody who has been touched by the horrible the horrible heartbreak of unfaithfulness. How can we help them to rebuild trust and forgiveness in their marriage? Uh, There's so much brokenness around. Everybody in this church should see yourself as an instrument of God to be used to bring healing to marriages. That's why I'm sharing these things with you. So Eros is, is put, it basically it puts the, the burden on someone else. And one of the, one of the things that... Um, I think we need to be aware of, even in our, in our relationships within the body of Christ, is this. Is that eros, is, it's based on excitement, it's based on emotion, and it's something new. I had a, a pastor share with me one time at a church, we did revivals. He said, you know, my family, growing up, my family was very much involved with church planning. And we went, on the, in the first 20 years of my life, we were involved in four different church plants. Every five years, we had something new, and new is exciting. He said, I did not know how to have solid, committed relationships, because we were always expecting the new and the exciting. And he said, I got married, I got settled down in church, and I was put to the ministry, and suddenly I had to learn how to have solid, committed relationships with people, long-term relationships. He said, it was so different from what I grew up in my church setting. We need to really, in our hearts, in our marriages, understand the value of covenant relationships because covenant relationships are about being faithful forever, regardless. It's faithfulness. I am faithful. I love you. I'm committed to you. And that will never change. That's what we're saying in our marriage vows. And we seek by the grace of God to live that out. There's another uh, <clears throat> Hebrew word, also, this is a Greek word, but the concept 
is in um, Hebrew as well. And most of you will recognize that as what kind of love? Comes from the word Philadelphia, the city of and we go to Revelation, we find that there was a church at Philadelphia. So that's where the word comes from. It's understood in the Old Testament as a love that is much deeper, much more desirable than eros. And so you think of someone who loved each other with a phileo love, a deep love and commitment, and a, a, just a, a, a love uh, covenant with, between each other. Two men in the Old Testament that stand out. Who are they? Thank you, brother. David and Jonathan. And David and Jonathan in Hebrew literature are men who were held up. Their, their relationship were held up as the perfect example of phileo love, of two brothers who would not let anything but death part them. And it's a great love. It's, it's important. Uh, Jesus says that his love is a different kind of love than that yet. It's a deeper love. It's a greater love. Uh, to have phileo love is to love my neighbor as I love myself. I love Brother Floyd as much as I love myself. That kind of a relationship is phileo love. When Jesus came on the scene, he introduced a complete new word. And that is what we're looking at here, charity. And of course, in the Greek, we uh, um, use the word, the word, the Greek word, is agape. Everyone together. Agape. Agape love. And so uh, it's important that we have a working definition of agape love. Agape love is when I give myself completely, entirely. I sacrifice myself completely and entirely uh, for the good of someone else. And I look for no, I expect no return from them. Regardless of how they respond to my love, I will lay my life down completely and totally for them. That is agape love. That is the love that Jesus loved us with. And that is the love that he calls us to love each other with in the church of Jesus Christ. How are we doing in the church of Jesus Christ? Are we doing really good at this? I think we need our hearts just to be stirred in this. Really stirred in this. To lay down our lives one for another. Completely, totally. And not expect anything in return. Um, Jesus says, you know what? You all know how to do phileo love quite well. You invite the people you like over to your house for lunch. Say, come on over. We're having a cookout at our house. And it's down in your heart. And you expect that someday you'll get invited back over to their house for a barbecue. That's phileo love. But what I'm going to call you to, he says this in Luke, I think it's in chapter 9. Here's what I'm going to call you to. I'm going to call you to agape love. Where you go out and you invite the lame, the blind, the crippled, the people who have no resources to come back to you and say, come to my house for lunch. They can't do it. That's the way I want you to learn to love. And that's the way I want you to love in your churches. And that's the way I want you to love in your marriages. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the recipe for a perfect marriage. Where two very imperfect, immature people, at least to some extent, are moving in the right direction. 
That's all my wife and I are. And I have, I have boldness to say that we have a perfect marriage. And here's why. Because our salvation does not rest in our perfection. It rests in his perfection. And what he's looking for from us is that we strive with an earnest and sincere heart to take the love wherewith he has loved us and to love each other, at least in some measure, with that same love. There's your recipe for a God-honoring marriage. It'll never be perfect. We stand before Christ. It will not be based upon how perfect we are or were or even how mature we were. But how mature did you want to be? Did you really want the glory of God to shine in your marriage and in your brotherhoods? Was that your passion? And we each make that choice. There's no one here that does not have the ability to make that choice to have the desire above everything else that God is glorified in our marriages. And so I think it's helpful for us to realize that our faith in Christ is for the purpose uh, of bringing hope into our hearts, that there can be restoration, and that we can be a people where a church where our men are, uh, understand loving headship and where our wives understand Willing submission. Um, so to, get to, to, to help us understand our tendency, our tendency is to keep going back to um, Eros. We just move that way because we are people and we do have feelings. We have emotions. There's nothing wrong with that. God created us that way, but he wants them to be sanctified by his truth. Sanctify them by thy word. Jesus prayed his truth. So um, I remember early on, I, I had the opportunity to work with some other counselors in sharing with people who were struggling in a marriage. And I remember some of my mentors, they would find a marriage that's struggling and we would give them advice like this. Okay, so here's what the problem is. You haven't been spending enough time together. What you need to do is you need to every week, let's say Thursday nights, every Thursday night, um, <clears throat> Floyd, you need to take your wife and find a nice restaurant, and you take her out to that restaurant, and you sit across the table from each other, and you look into each other's eyes every Thursday night. Don't miss a night. And you will find the spark, the fire, the passion coming back into your love for your wife. Okay? So we would tell people that. Now let's just back that up a bit. The recipe for a God-honoring marriage is that we apply the gospel. What happens if you uh, live in Africa and you have no means to take your wife out even once a year? Does that mean that you're doomed and you, can have, you cannot have a good marriage? The gospel works everywhere. Everywhere. It's universal. And so maybe we're giving people wrong advice. Maybe we better stick to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe we better just hold forth Jesus, not ourselves, not our own ideas. And another uh, common thing that we used to do, we'd have a husband and a wife, and she would express disappointment in the marriage, and he would express disappointment in the marriage, and I'd take a piece of paper and say, 
I want you to write down everything that you're looking for in your marriage. I want you to write down everything you're looking for in your marriage. And so we would sit there at a the table, and they would write it all down. She would write down, this is, this is what I would like to see in my husband. He would write down, this is what I want to see in my wife. And then we would exchange the papers. We would say, read that, and, let us, and, and then let's talk about this. How can we achieve these goals? What's wrong with that? What is wrong with that? What is wrong with that? And then we would uh, get together the next time, and we would look over, we would, re- we would review it, and we would say, okay, how are you doing? How are you doing, brother? Okay, how do you think he's doing? And how do you think she's doing? Are you gaining ground? Are you working on these things? Are things getting better in your marriage? Are they getting worse? And it seemed like things were getting better for a little bit. All of a sudden, things were getting really bad. <laughs> Why? Because we were calling them to focus on each other's performance. Is that the gospel? Does God focus on your performance? Or does he invite you to come and exercise a greater faith in his ability? To come and and draw near and connect to him, to experience his power in your life in new and refreshing ways each and every day? What does he focus on? Your performance? Absolutely not. And yet we were calling couples to focus on each other's performance. And we never seen the fruit of solid growth and love in their marriages until we started holding forth the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And that works. That works. I have people that have come back to me and said, you know what? When we started applying the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simple the simple truth regarding the love that Christ has loved us with, Jesus said, I'm, I give, I'm giving you a new commandment, Jesus said. It's, it's not to love your neighbor as yourself. It is to love your neighbor as what? As to love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? With an agape love. With a love wherewith he laid down his life. And this is the amazing thing. I have experienced it in my life to a measure. Jesus experienced it in fullness. Jesus was in the olive press for us, for our salvation. And um, the scripture says that he was more joyful than all his brethren. For the joy, the Hebrew writer says, for the joy that was set before him. There is a joy that comes to someone who pours their lives out completely. As broken bread and poured out wine for others and expects nothing in return. They find the sheer joy, the sheer joy of sacrifice. And that's what we see in the gospel, where Jesus, just for the sheer, for the, for the, the privilege, the opportunity to give you salvation, he allowed himself to be brutally beaten beyond recognition, more so than any man ever in history. And he found joy in it. That is agape love. It is so deep, it is so rich in meaning that we can never fully mine all that there is to understand in agape love. But we seek, by the grace of God, to humble our hearts and say, God, teach us how to love as we've been loved by Jesus. And that is how we apply the gospel to our marriages. I have some more scriptures here I thought about just going to and um, looking at briefly. Um, I think what we'll do is let's go to Ephesians 5. 
You know, you, it's difficult to talk about marriage without referring to Ephesians chapter 5. So let, let's go Ephesians 5 and just, just look at a few things. Because Ephesians 5 lays out very clearly that in marriage, it's about um, willing submission and it's about loving headship. And so we just, just go there for a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about a couple things here. Briefly, Ephesians 5, verse 21. Uh, verse 21 says this, <clears throat> uh, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? I remember the day uh, I was talking to a young lady uh, who was struggling with some things. And um, she said, I just made a wonderful discovery in the Word of God. I said, tell me about it. And she said, I discovered that uh, sometimes my, I need to submit to my husband, but my husband also need, needs to submit to me. And she was so delighted to discover that her husband needed to submit to her. And so I asked her, I said, okay, so uh, who determines when your husband needs to submit to you and when you need to submit to him? Well, at the end of the conversation, I concluded that she was the one who made those decisions. And that's human nature. Uh, we go back to Genesis. God said, this is the way it's going to be. There's going to be the struggle that, that you sisters have, uh, all of you universally. And for some of you, it's uh, depending on your experiences in life, it's going to be more difficult than others of you. But all of you universally, according to God, this is not according to me, this is according to God, you will struggle to submit to your husbands. Uh, according to God, all of you men will struggle with apathy, um, just not taking your responsibility to be a loving head in your home. That's just the way it is. All of you are guilty of it. That means me too. That's our tendency. And so what God is doing is he's lovingly calling us to overcome by his spirit and by his power to rise up and be the woman who willingly submits, and a man who provides loving headship in the home. He's calling us to that, and his spirit is able, his power is there uh, for us to experience that. And so this passage of Scripture is talking about our mutual submission together unto Christ. It's difficult for you to gather that in the King James Version here, but if you study it in the original and in some of the other uh, translations, the ESV is, I think, a lot clearer in that. But it is this, it is that our focal point is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our brother is here and our sister is here, and they might have differing opinions, their husband and wife, but here's what happens. when If they both submit themselves to Christ as they journey along through the, 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 the journey of marriage, what happens? What happens as they submit themselves to Christ? What happens? They come together, is that right? There's a unity and that is um, a symbolic of the, the great story of redemption, being reconciled to God. That's how our marriages, it's, it's one of the foundational things of our marriages, is get your eyes off of each other. And I tell, young, I tell couples this, particularly young couples, I say, you know, here's the problem. You're trying to fix your marriage. You're trying to solve the problems in your marriage. Just stop it. Just quit. Quit working on your marriage. Start walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And the problems will go away. <laughs> they just do. It might take some time. But the longer you focus on them, the longer they're going to hang around in your life. It's just the way it is. That's one of the good things about getting old. 
as you start seeing the consequences of the choices we make. So if you're struggling, just quit working with your struggles, okay? Just stop. Just give them to God and, and start following Jesus. He says, if you walk in the light that I give you for today, you're going to have light. You're not going to trip. You're not going to fall. Just walk in the light. And as, as a husband and wife, commit themselves to humble, willing submission to Christ in all things. Whatever your situation is, commit it to Christ. Be anxious for nothing. You don't have the energy for that. Turn over. Just give it to Christ. And walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Learn to love. And we come together uh, as husband and wife in a uh, we come into a narrow path, the straight and narrow path that Jesus is inviting us to. It is so beautiful. It is exciting. I find it to be such a blessing in my life, and I've seen it be a tremendous blessing in the lives of others as well. Um, what, what, what happens is, is we, here's, here's the key. Marriage is to make us, um, is it happy or holy? One of your brothers tell us. Holy. And we keep that straight in our hearts, that the primary purpose of marriage is to glorify God. How is God glorified? When his holiness is reflected in our lives. That's the primary purpose. And, and really, we're called, at this time, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you to flip back in your Bible uh, to 1 Corinthians. This is a passage that I often share with um, married couples in reference to how the Bible says that as we submit ourselves to Christ together, uh, there's actually, it works a holiness in our lives. As we become, um, so here, here's the picture that marriage gives is of two individuals who are very different, very, very different. You know that, right? You're different than your wife, and you're very different than your wife emotionally, um, intellectually, just the way you process things. You are so very, very different than your wife. God created that way. The Jew and the Gentile were very, very different people. What happened? The gospel brings them together and makes them one in Christ. This is a great celebration of the gospel. Um, God can take a man and woman who are very, very different and bring them together. And sometimes and I, I listen to young people talk today, some of the things that they say about chemistry, some of the struggles that I see in our Anabaptist churches where uh, it's really difficult to get young men to even take responsibility and move forward with relationships. Do you notice that that's a problem in a lot of Anabaptist churches? It is a problem. We have, there was a church that we were at out in the, in the West where there was 10 young men uh, between the ages of 26 and 40 who came in and sat in the back row just afraid of the responsibility, afraid things might not work out. They didn't want a marriage like mom and dad had. All kinds of excuse, reasons I got as I visited with those young men. And I uh, preached a message to them one night. And um, I talked about some things a couple of more nights, and one young man told somebody, he said, you know, if that man says one more thing about young men taking responsibility and getting married, I'm going to get up and walk out. And two months later, he was dating. I don't think it was because of me. I think God was working in his heart. <laughs> but we do have a problem. We have a problem with taking responsibility. We don't have the vision for the oneness that God has for us. And I just want to take you to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I see we're going to have to move along here real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, start at verse 2. Okay, we'll start at verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof I wrote unto you, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. That is simply saying, what Paul is saying here is because of the present situation with the intense persecution and trials that the church is facing, it would seem like it would be wise to not be married. 
That's what he's saying. But nevertheless, okay, in spite of all the things that would say that it's better to not be married, he says, here is a great advantage of marriage. What is it? That we find holiness together. That's what he's saying. Read what he says. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Let not the, the husband render unto his wife due benevolence. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife has not power on her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband has not power on his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your inconsistency. Now, what is he saying in all that? What he is saying in all of that is this. We talked last night about the vine and the importance of you attending to your connection to the vine because your vine is your only hope of life. And and in the world that we live in, we live in a very, um, uh, how can I say, we live in a a Babylonian culture, um, a pre-flood culture, where there is so much debauchery, so much nudity, so much corruption all around us. We are constantly being tempted. Uh, probably not a lot more than in, in Corinth. Corinth was a, 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 a city that was known. Uh, we might say, people say San Francisco is a sin city. You know, he's a San Franciscan. Well, they would say he's a Corinthian, someone who lives in excessive uh, immorality was a Corinthian. Even the Romans called people Corinthians if they lived in excessive uh, immorality. But what Paul was telling the church at, at Corinth is this. With everything that's going on in the world, it doesn't make a lot of sense to get married, but marriage is good, and here's why. It helps us become holy. When you spend time with Jesus every morning, let me ask you young men, all of you brothers, when you spend time with Jesus in the morning, do you have a power in your life to be holy throughout the day? To respond rightly to the temptations that you are faced with? Is that, is that a true statement? Absolutely. I mean, unquestionably, in my life, when I spend time with the Lord and I humble my heart before the Lord and I seek strength from the Lord and I pray for grace to be a faithful man, I can go through that day and barely notice the temptations that are around me. What Paul is saying that in the same way when a husband and wife understand that God created them, two bodies, two souls that become one, united together, physically and spiritually. You see the, the intimacy, the gift of intimacy that God has given to a husband and a wife as an incredible gift from God. It's an incredible gift. It is pure. It's holy. It's sacred. And it is to be treasured and guarded with your life. It has many benefits in your life, and one of them is this. We don't use it to control each other. We learn to be mature and to talk together in mature ways. We restrain our appetites, but we share together in loving fellowship in that way, and it's an act of worship to God because it brings us together. He says it helps remove the temptations of the flesh from your life, and it helps you stay focused on our calling to move together in spirit towards Christ. And this is the interesting thing that we need to really uh, understand in our hearts, that when a husband and wife share together in loving um, relationship, um, it is the most treasured thing in a marriage. It builds a bonding in uh, in their life, in their souls. 
in a way that we don't fully understand. It's a mystery. It's like the gospel. It's a mystery. But it, it happens because God ordained it. He sanctioned it. He blessed it. It's honorable, very honorable. And I think um, it's like that, that treasured thing that you and your wife just, you have it together. It's, it's a treasure from God. It's so precious to your heart. And, and I, what can you liken it to? I think, I think it's meant to be likened to this. Um, the most extraordinary experience that you could experience, body, soul, and spirit, your entire emotions, would be the day when you stand before Christ, the bridegroom, and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That will be the climax of your Christian life. It is meant to be something that you treasure. And when you're spending time with Christ in the morning, it is preparing you for that moment when you stand before the bridegroom and you're his bride. And you find favor in his sight. Brothers and sisters, we seldom see the holiness of this. For you to be completely naked before him, completely known and completely loved. Do you get it? Completely known, completely loved. We've got to get that. That's the gospel of marriage. We've got to get that. Completely known, unquestionably, completely loved. In a measure that we wrap our minds around that great reality that we will all face someday, we strive, we strive to be sanctified, to keep our hearts pure for that moment when we see a bridegroom. So our brothers and sisters strive to keep their marriage holy. They strive to draw together in intimacy. They're not satisfied to let anything come between them. They recognize that as they guard this intimacy and they share in this intimacy, every act of intimacy is an act of worship. It's an act that, according to the Apostle Paul, helps you keep your heart pure and your life pure as you journey towards that day when we will see the ultimate bridegroom. And we will all be his bride. Totally known. Totally loved. It's the gospel in marriage. Treasure it. Value it. Thank God for it. I see we're um, out of time here for this evening. I, I wanted to close early tonight. I'm sorry. Um, I think I'm going to just leave it at that. Trust that God can speak uh, to your hearts with a little bit that we've shared here tonight. I, uh, maybe we'll close with this yet.
that, I don't know why it is, it's, just, it's all of us, it's not you, it's me, all of us. And we have so many things that want to draw our eyes away from the beauty of God's design and marriage and Sometimes we just need to stop and think about the reality that someday there's going to be a party. We tend to kick it down the road when we're young. Oh, yeah, every once in a while, tragedy strikes somebody, and it comes quick and it comes sudden. One day we were setting concrete panels on a construction site. These are precast walls that we had poured in a laying down position. We had a crane there, and uh, <clears throat> we were using this crane to set these walls up. And so what would happen was I was a foreman on the job. We had about 150 feet. Uh, four rows like that. We were going along setting, set to lunchtime. We took a lunch break, and we were setting in the afternoon. And so these, these if you can imagine this being a 12-foot by 12-foot concrete reinforced wall laying on the ground, there's a whole bunch of them laying in a row, and the crane's over here working, and he reaches over. We hook a chain to each one of these hooks, and it goes through his cable, and <clears throat> he cables up and booms out, and he brings this thing over, and it's, it's like hanging like this because it's suspended off of cables on this side. And he brings it over and he, he sets it on the footer. But this thing wants to go like this. And being the industrious person I was, I had guys all lined up putting um, the retaining brackets and braces in as soon as we got it there. I would step in under each one and guide it, keep it square, set it on the chalk line. And then he would winch up and bring that wall up to a perfectly plumb position and we would brace it there and go to the next one the next one we had an incredible system going we were walking working down through that deal just likely split i was feeling pretty good about the whole deal and we're going to come across here to set down we set it down on the footer so now the weight is on that corner and instead of cabling up he cabled out and just for a second, that wall set right there. And all of a sudden, with that slack in the cable, it fell right toward me. And stopped before it crushed me. I got out from under it. Um, had the chain not held, my life would have been over faster than I knew what happened. And the crane operator got down out of the crane. He was just sweating. He said, I am so sorry. I just went the wrong direction. I am so sorry. And we all gather our wits back together. He cabled up, brought the wall up. I got back in under it, moved it over, set it down, put it in place, put the braces on it. He took the slack out of the cable, and the chain fell in half. It had broke the weld on the chain, and it had opened up and yet held. I have, it was impossible for that to happen apart from the hand of God. That chain link is laid on our mantle for many years. 
to remind me of that moment. We just never know. Never know. I went home that day a different man. I went home, gathered my children together. I hugged my children. I hugged my wife. I'm just so glad to be home. I'm so glad that you still have a husband provide for you. I'm so glad you still have a dad. That's reality. That is reality. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. We none can take the next breath or have the next heartbeat apart from his divine will and his protection in our lives. Marriage is an incredible gift and it's so terrible fragile. It's as fragile as your next breath. It's a good thing just to stop and think about that. No, guaranteed tomorrow. Let's live out the gospel today. We have today. Live it in the present. Now abideth faith, hope, and charity. And the greatest of these is, is charity. Laying down our lives, finding deep joy in laying down our lives. And the recipe for a God-honoring marriage is loving headship, willing submission. No one can force you to submit. No one can force you to love. It's our choice. Let's stand for prayer.